Thank you, Tim. Thank you. Great. Uh, we all uh, need an audience. Uh, to some degree or another, we, we actually all need an audience, um, real or imagined, a, a panel of people who can assess or validate what we're doing, can gauge worth, can say that what we're doing is worth doing and that what we've done, we've done well. Uh, to applaud, so to speak, when it has uh, been done well, when we're doing it. Uh, in Shakespeare's as you like it, there's a line that's become a famous quotation, and that line is, all the world's a stage, and all men and women merely players. Um, I have no idea what that means, because I don't know what the play's about. Uh, but I do know that it's become a famous quotation, and that many people use it in lots of different ways, because actually there are lots of different ways uh, in, in, in which a, a play, in a theater connects or relates to the world outside of that play, outside of that theater. And just as a play without an audience would somehow be pointless, it would become a rehearsal, not a performance, so too we also need an audience for validation. The best experience an audience can provide you with is applause. That is to say, affirmation, or as the ancients would put it, honor. The worst experience we can have before any audience, real or imagined, is booing. The humiliation of rejection, rejection of us, rejection of what we've done, censure, or as the ancients would put it, shame. Shamed as insufficient, inadequate, inferior. That would be the worst experience. Well, uh, we're studying together Jesus' Sermon on the Mount from Matthew's Gospel. And in our studies, we're up to chapter 6, and we're in the middle of a section in which Jesus speaks to us about three things. Um, giving to the needy, prayer, and lastly, fasting. And the take-home lesson is actually given to us right at the start. Verse 1 of chapter 6 says, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others in order to be seen by them. If you do, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. And uh, we thought about the meaning of that verse in some depth last weekend. But in each of the three sections, Jesus compares the behavior he requires from his disciples with another group of people whom Jesus calls hypocrites. Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? For thou art more lovely and more temperate. That's another quotation from Shakespeare, and again, I have no idea what it means. But I use it to remember whether to say compare with or compare to. Compare to is to look for similarities. To compare with is to look for differences. Shall I compare thee with a summer's day would have been insulting. So Jesus compares with. Jesus compares the behavior he wants from his disciples with another group of people whom he calls hypocrites because disciples are to be different. The hypocrites give to the needy and they pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners and they fast with you know, making a great show of it. Everything's accompanied by fanfare in order to be seen by other people. 
And they aren't hypocrites because they need an audience. We all need an audience. They are hypocrites, pretenders, players on a stage, because they are pretending to live life to the glory and honor of God, when in fact they're actually living to the glory and honor of themselves. And when they receive their applause, they're receiving their reward in full, Jesus says. They've already got what they wanted. It was a business transaction and uh, a successful one, and they've got what they wanted. They're rewarded. Uh, in the uh, sitcom Big Bang Theory, Dr. Shelton Cooper's dream and ambition is to win the Nobel Prize for Physics. He wants to win that prize because this is the ultimate prize, the highest possible honor for his occupation, which, of course, is theoretical physics. He's already won so many other prizes, often holding the record for being the youngest person ever to win that prize. The Nobel Prize is really the only thing left for him to win. And at the conclusion of the final season, he wins it. He's winning the Nobel Prize for Physics is the grand finale, the, the triumphant conclusion to the entire 279 episode 12 season series. And if you've watched many or most or all of those 279 episodes, as I have, uh, you know that Dr. Sheldon Cooper needs to win prizes because he needs affirmation, approval, and respect. He needs that from human beings. He needs human beings to affirm that what he's doing is worthwhile and that he's doing it well. And occasionally, when he fails to get the affirmation he needs in one or two episodes, he collapses because of it. And that just takes me right back to my own days working in science. That the, the getting of papers published in respectable journals, peer review, being invited to speak at conferences. Science is intensely social. And most scientists I knew wanted and needed the affirmation of their peers, the approval of the academy, of their discipline, pretty much just like Dr. Sheldon Cooper. Dr. Cooper's need for human approval does not make him a hypocrite. It actually makes him human. He'd be a hypocrite if he said that he didn't need human approval or recognition. And he'd be a hypocrite if he said that he was doing it solely for the welfare of humanity or solely for the glory of God. Then he'd be a hypocrite. But that would be unlikely. Dr. Cooper's character is always presented to us as a convinced atheist. And this is Jesus' point. The hypocrites are hypocrites, not for wanting or needing an audience, but rather for pretending to live for one audience when all the while actually they're living for another audience entirely. In these three sections, Jesus makes it clear that actually, ultimately, we are to live for one audience and one audience alone, our Father in heaven. And actually, he is the perfect audience, seeing and hearing that which is done in secret, hearing what no one else can hear, and able to provide us actually as our creator and we, his creatures, able to actually provide us the affirmation, attention, approval, validation, vindication that we need as human beings. And actually, we do need it, and we need it from our creator because he made us, and he loves us, and he knows us. 
and uh, when, we, when, when we live for him as our audience, then he answers the deep questions of our hearts. That, 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 that actually it, it is good and right how he has made us, that, that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, uh, that we're made with a purpose, with good works prepared in advance for us to do. When we live for him, he's able to answer all the questions. Verse 6, but when you pray, go into your room, close the door and pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Uh, We might hear your room as your bedroom. Uh, That's quite possible, but it's unlikely Uh, The word uh, room uh, here is a particular uh, word for inner room. It is the word for an inner room without windows or doors to the outside, uh, to to, to out of doors. Um, uh, For uh, poorer people in that context, this inner room would likely be the pantry or the storeroom. Uh, For for richer people, it could be a safe room, a, a storeroom for treasure. Uh, For the very rich, um, it could be um, a place where valuables were stored or or for them, uh, indeed, a private bedchamber if they were rich enough to afford that. I spoke also um, in some depth last week about what it means that our Heavenly Father will reward us for these hidden good works, giving to the needy in secret, prayer in private, and fasting in disguise. We will be rewarded. How? Well, in brief, our God is a God who saves us by grace. We are saved by his saving initiative by grace. And once he's saved us, he enables us to do things for him and with him and through him that are pleasing to him in his sight by the Holy Spirit. And having enabled us to do good things, stuff motivated by love and hope and faith, he rewards us, even though he's helped us and enabled us to do it, he rewards us both in this life and in the next with rewards that are completely out of proportion to the very works. The rewards that are wildly unfair that are radically generous. Um, So then, that's amazing. We can take this as great encouragement to pray, even simple prayers about our own needs and desires. We can understand that when we do that, we're going to be rewarded greatly by our Heavenly Father in heaven, spatially speaking, and in the future, temporally speaking, both in this life and in the next. That's a great encouragement. An additional encouragement to pray is is the certainty that God will answer our prayers. We know he will answer um, um, uh, our prayers. It's his reputation on the line, not ours. So Jesus says, verse 7, And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. And um, in the Bible, there is a vast sea of Scripture, Psalm 66, which was just read together, vast sea of Scripture, affirming that our Father in heaven does hear our prayers, giving us what we've asked for in faith, when we ask in Jesus' name, um, satisfying the desires of our hearts with good things. 
So again, here, Jesus is concerned. This is about motivation, not methodology. This is about motivation rather than location. What Jesus is saying here doesn't preclude the possibility of also praying in the streets and in the synagogues. Jesus did that himself. But this inner room stuff is given so that we might check our motivation. Which audience are we playing to? And taking Jesus' words on giving, verses in your pew Bible, you can see it there, verses 2 to 4, as a model, um, he's just taught us about giving, we may now expect Jesus' words on prayer to finish at the end of verse 6, then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. According to the formula, we now expect him to move on to the next topic, but uh, he doesn't. Rather, he makes a new contrast. In the first few verses, he's contrasted what he wants from his disciples with the hypocrites. Now he contrasts what he wants from his disciples with the pagans or the Gentiles and the way that they pray. And the Bible itself provides us with lots of various pictures of pagan prayer in the ancient world. What did it look like when pagans prayed in the ancient world? Well, we see Jonah's shipmates desperately crying out to their gods for rescue from the storm, not knowing if, anyone, if, if their gods will answer, if their gods even care. We, we, we hear the prophets of Baal praying desperately for fire to fall on their sacrifice, and they pray and shout and carry on and dance and jump up and down for hours and hours, and then they start cutting themselves with sports, with swords, with swords and spears, the blood flowing freely, we're told, all to, to try to convince Baal to take action or to take notice. Then in Isaiah, we, we see a man out of a lump of wood carve an idol, bow down to it and say, save me, you are my God. We know what pagan prayer looks like. We know also that actually all human beings pray. I understand that most atheists, people who technically don't believe in the existence of God at all, most atheists will admit to praying in a crisis. God bless them. But left to our own devices, not knowing who is listening on the other end, or really if they're listening at all, human beings tend to imagine that God needs some incentive to help us, that He's going he's to require some winning over, some coaxing or coercing. In utter contrast, as followers of Jesus, we know to whom we speak. We know that he loves us, that he cares for us, and that he is concerned for our welfare. This then, verse 9, is how you should pray. Um, so the contrast of prayer technique with the pagans creates an opportunity to dis teach the disciples how to pray. And what follows is a prayer that we know as the, our Father or the Lord's Prayer. Back in uh, 2016, we, we did a seven-part series on the Lord's Prayer, looking at it in concert with the Psalms, seeing what it taught us about prayer. Um, today, perhaps we should consider what this prayer teaches us about our audience, our Father in heaven, as well as what it teaches us about ourselves as speakers in his presence. Well, uh, simply, the prayer teaches us to fix our eyes on him 
and who he is before moving on to our stuff. Uh, the, the prayer reminds us to surrender in his presence. We surrender to his will and for his glory. Rather than, along with the pagans, coming into his presence in order to get him to surrender to our will for our glory. No, no, in his presence, our first task is to surrender to his will for his glory. And um, it's a wonderful thing, once we're there praying this prayer, um, the prayer actually shows us the culture of heaven, uh, what heaven is like. And we discover that it's a land of grace truth rather than honor shame. By grace, we belong to God as his children. So we belong in his presence. But in his presence, we tell the truth, confessing sins. And now that we live in the land of grace truth and not honor shame, we extend forgiveness instantly, always, and to everyone who sins against us. To fail to do that would to show us that actually we're foreigners in that heavenly place with visas just about to expire. For many, it can be a scandal to hear that Jesus commands that we forgive always, instantly, and everyone. And that, except that we forgive, we ourselves are not forgiven. In other words, not belonging. Answering uh, this scandal fully is not a job I wish to do today. As I've spoken on forgiveness recently, and it's actually a subject we consider regularly, but I will just give half the answer, which is to remind us that in our world, we often assume that our emotions are a litmus test as to whether we've forgiven someone or not. And so occasionally you'll hear people say things like, I, I haven't forgiven, I can't forgive. And what they may mean is, I'm still desperately hurting, or I'm still so angry. But Jesus isn't talking about emotions, and emotions aren't the measure of forgiveness. No, 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 forgiveness is a legal transaction. Forgiveness is laying down our legal right to repayment in kind. And so forgiveness is forsaking as a decision of our will, revenge, retaliation, or repayment. And it's not simply saying, oh, I feel better now. It's all okay. If you are in any doubt as to whether you've forgiven somebody who's hurt you, you can simply pray, Father, as a decision of my will, I forgive so-and-so who sinned against me by doing such and such. I forgive him or her freely in the name of Jesus Amen. And then you can know, however you might feel, then you can know that you have forgiven them, irrespective of where your heart might be, knowing that actually forgiveness, when it comes to hurt and pain and anger, forgiveness is the first step in the healing of your heart, not the last. That's a few words on forgiveness. Back to the Lord's Prayer. Over the years, I've heard um, preachers say, I've read commentators who have written that Jesus certainly did not expect us 
to recite the prayer word for word, line by line, in the way in which we actually most commonly do at home or at church. Uh, one commentator wrote, quote, mindlessly reciting the prayer is a futile exercise more like the babbling of the idolaters than the cry of Jesus' followers, unquote. And what such voices affirm is, is that the Lord's Prayer is a guide, it's a model, it's the inspiration for our prayers, like the prayers of Jesus, will be intimate, personal, heartfelt, etc., etc. I... I don't fully agree. I would prefer to say that it's not one thing or the other, but actually both. Yes, the Lord's Prayer is a guide. It's a model. It's the stepping off point. It's the pattern from which we start. But as human beings, we often experience not knowing how to pray. The Jewish background uh, to this prayer, of course, is the Psalter, the Book of Psalms. 150 prayers that Jews and Christians have been memorizing and praying, wrote word for word, line by line, for over 3,000 years, knowing that this is the schoolyard of prayer. This is where we learn how to pray. And whilst it is wonderful to pray deep, personal, extemporaneous, um, spontaneous, heartfelt, sincere, profoundly convinced prayers... Strong emotions don't validate prayer. It's wonderful when it happens, but I pray the Lord's Prayer for one reason or another. I pray the Lord's Prayer at least twice a day. And um, on a Sunday, I don't know how many times I might pray through different services and so on and so forth. Um, And it is a decision of my will to amen it, irrespective of how I feel. Um, Many times when I pray the Lord's Prayer, I'm aware that I'm praying the Lord's Prayer whilst thinking about other things. That happens. Um, But we are men. It is a decision of our will, however we might feel. Certainly, the Lord's Prayer, it's not the sum and fulfillment of all prayer. It's not the final destination. It is a first step. It is a guide. But we shouldn't despise it for that reason as a prayer to be prayed word for word, line by line. It's where we start. The Lord's Prayer is a short prayer. This doesn't invalidate lengthy prayers or long intercessions or um, lengthy outpourings of our heart. It does invalidate long prayer as a way of trying to impress or coerce God. And um, one last thing to think about, about this Lord's Prayer is um, we notice that all of the first-person pronouns are plural. It's always our, us. It's never I, me, my. Given that Jesus has just taught us to go into the inner room unobserved, secretly, to kneel down and to pray by ourselves to our Heavenly Father who sees what is done in secret, I would expect singular first-person pronouns, my Father in heaven. Hallowed be thy name. Give me today my daily bread. Forgive me my debts as I also have forgiven my debtors. And lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from the evil one. But in fact, what we notice from the prayer is that it's a crowded place, isn't it? Our Father in heaven, give us our bread. Forgive us as we forgive others and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And that 
that's a little bit mysterious. Jesus has just taught us to go by ourselves, but now the prayer, it's all first-person plural pronouns. The standard response, again, to quote one commentator, a standard response is something like this. Quote, the use of the first-person plural pronoun our rather than the first-person singular pronoun my shows that Jesus expected his disciples to pray together as a group. Unquote. Thus, corporate prayer is affirmed alongside individual prayer. Well, that is undoubtedly true. But I don't think it's the whole truth. It could be that Jesus is teaching us to have a, have a corporate understanding even when we pray by ourselves. So then in a sense, when I'm by myself and I pray the Lord's Prayer, I'm praying for others, specified or not, along with me. Give us, give us today our daily bread. Forgive us. Save and deliver us. I'm, I'm interceding just as a matter of course. I'm aware of others when I pray by myself. That could be what Jesus intends. A third option is the possibility that Jesus is showing us that there's no such thing, actually, as private prayer. There is no real privacy in that inner room. No, what's whispered in the inner room will be somehow broadcast. Um, in this view, when we enter the pantry, unseen and unobserved, and close the door behind us and kneel down in prayer all alone, we are like Lucy entering the wardrobe and finding herself in Narnia. Actually, suddenly, we are in the throne room of God, approaching God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need, to quote Hebrews 4.16. And now, in that pantry, we are indeed in the spiritual realms. Surrounded, if we're in the throne room of God, then we are surrounded by a great sea of witnesses, the elders, the angels, and creatures beyond number falling down in worship and praise and thanksgiving. For me, actually, that's something to think about. Pantry as heavenly portal. And the non-existence of private prayer. Certainly, prayers should be profoundly intimate. God knows the deepest thoughts and inclinations of all of our hearts already. But I'm not sure that our Father grants us private audiences in the strictest sense. Uh, when we pray, we enter the, the, we enter the inner, inner circles of the government of heaven um, and, and speak to him directly. Um, extraordinary thoughts. Um, well, uh, in summary, let's conclude. In summary, uh, we all need an audience. We need from that audience affirmation, attention, and approval. Th that we are where we're supposed to be, that we're doing what we're meant to be doing, that we are known and loved. Our Father is our audience. Um, that he designed us for that. Jesus, therefore, warns us against praying like hypocrites, living for human approval whilst pretending to live for God's. The test, the, the test of our motivation will be regular, alone time with our Father. 
praying day by day by ourselves in the inner room. In the pantry, we come into his presence. And in his kingdom, the culture is grace, truth, not honor, shame. And so Jesus teaches us to pray. To God be the glory, great things he has done. Amen.